All right, we are uh, in week five of our summer series, and finally, we are going to be introduced to one of our two major characters in the study of Nehemiah and Ezra, and if you're thinking, how in the world have we gone four weeks without even talking about one of those two people, then you've never been a part of our Wednesday night Bible study, uh, because Wednesday night Bible study, we will we'll stay through uh, one book of the Bible for, for 16, 17 weeks. We just kind of go at our own pace and work through, and that's kind of the mindset that I've had towards the summer series this year is just to kind of just work through it as it comes and as it kind of presents itself to us. And so we've been looking at uh, the exiles return back to, uh, to Jerusalem and back to uh, Judah. Uh, we've kind of paralleled our own life, our own comeback story, how we need this spiritual comeback of our own to kind of come along back along with them. And we've learned, I think, a lot uh, through the last few weeks about what that looks like and how that uh, kind of appears and how the, the, the uh, kind of the speed bumps, I talked about that last week, kind of hit the road and we all should be expecting those things. And finally today... We're going to look at this incredible event within the story of the returning Jews, be introduced to Ezra, and I think really see a very powerful parallel to our own comeback. So uh, if you've been following along, know that we've been, uh, we've kind of got the altar rebuilt, right? Worship has returned back to Judah. Uh, opposition came. God did what only God could do, right? We've, we talked about that. Remember he said, uh, listen, you fought it, so you're just going to pay for it. Remember the guys who were, uh, who were against the, the people of God, and they ended up having to pay for the 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 last parts of rebuilding the temple. Uh, finally, last week we saw the temple was finally finished after years and years. Uh, we didn't read this last week, but they dedicated the temple uh, with sacrificing 200 bulls, 200 rams, 400 male lambs, and 12 male goats, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So they had a big uh, worship service where they uh, slaughtered a lot of animals and, uh, and presented their offering to God. It was a really incredible moment. Uh, and up to this point, Zerubbabel, which is the guy who has been leading uh, this rebuilding effort, and a guy by the name of Jeshua or Joshua, depends on how you want to say that, uh, they have been leading really well. They've been doing things. They've been kind of taking charge. Jeshua's the priest. Zerubbabel's kind of like this governor. Uh, and they've been doing everything that they can do to get the people of God back to where they're supposed to be doing uh, all the things they're supposed to be uh, doing. And if you go, if you've been following with us, the end of chapter 6, uh, we actually see the Jews celebrate Passover, which is an incredible moment because that means they haven't done that since the beginning of the exile. Uh, and so this is another big monumental moment in the lives of the Jews, uh, something they have not done in a long time. And if you're following the story, it just kind of seems like everything's right Finally, we can all just kind of take this big, deep breath. We've had a little bit of opposition. We've come overcome that opposition. We're celebrating Passover. All things are right in the world. And finally, in the beginning of chapter 7, we're introduced to Ezra and probably the most biblical way possible. So if you have your Bible, turn to Ezra chapter 7. We're going to read just a few of these verses because I don't want to get lost in the names. Ezra chapter 7 verse 1 starts with this. It says, after these Things. You're going to want to circle that phrase in your scripture because we're going to come back to it in a minute. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Saraiah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, and it just keeps going, the son of this person, the son of this person. I'm not going to read all these Hebrew names for you. But look where it ends. Verse 5. Skip all the way down to that. The son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief 
priest. On the screen, I have that in bold. That's my uh, capital letters. That's not in Scripture. I put it like that. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher, well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. Ezra is a direct descendant of Aaron. This is Moses' brother. If you remember the story of the, uh, the Israelites leaving Egypt, uh, remember Moses was afraid to speak, and so God said, I'm going to give you Aaron, your brother. He will be kind of your mouthpiece. In the early portions of, of kind of uh, negotiations with Pharaoh, Aaron was the one doing all the talking, right? He was granted the priesthood, and uh, God gave him and his descendants the priesthood. And matter of fact, he appointed him as the very first high priest of Israel. This Aaron was Ezra's great, 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 great grandfather. And you're thinking, who cares, right? Well, I'll tell you who cares. The Jews care because in their culture, your genealogy, your ancestry, your connection to the past gave weight to your credentials in the present. For Ezra, him being a direct descendant of the original high priest meant that people looked to him. They valued his opinion. They respected his counsel, right? And look how he was described, a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses. He knew the law, right? He taught the law. He lived the law. He, he, he did all those things and everybody around him knew it about him. As a matter of fact, if we were to fast forward even into verse 10 of chapter 7, I think I've got it on the screen. Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to the teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. That word devoted himself means fixed his heart on. It was his life calling to study and observe the law of the Lord and to teach it. He was a man who was fully devoted to God and what God had for him and what God had for others. So he, he devoted his life to teaching the law of the Lord. It's an incredible moment. But I don't know if you caught this. Ezra chapter 7 verse 1 started, I told you to circle out, after these things, which means after they rebuilt the altar, after they uh, stood against resistance, after Haggai and Zechariah, remember from last week, kind of came in and prophesied and kind of got everybody riled back up to start rebuilding the temple again, after the temple had already been finished, then Ezra comes to Jerusalem and the question has to be asked, where you been, Ezra, Right? Like, we've been doing all this stuff. We've been here for a good long time. Where have you been? We could have used your wisdom. We could have used your counsel. We could have used your power and your influence. It said the hand of God was on him. We could have used that, right? Where have you been, Ezra? And hear me, because I really struggled in how to say this next part. I probably rewrote this portion of the message four or five times. I'd write it out, I'd erase it, I'd write it out, and I'd move stuff around. I'd end up erasing it all anyway. I want to make a point, but I don't want you to misunderstand what's happening in the life of Ezra. So let me, let me just do this. I'm going to share my point first, 
and then I'll fill you in on the life of Ezra. So here's my point. Not everyone's comeback looks like yours. But that doesn't take away from their comeback. Right? God, God works in the lives of his people individually, right? He works in every one of us individually. For some of us, it feels like a quick turnaround, like we were in sin and disobedience for just a little bit, and then we got right back to what we were supposed to be doing. For other people, it feels like a long time coming, right? You've been living this life, or maybe you know people who've been living this life for a very, very long time, and you're like, why don't they get it? Why don't they just come back? Why don't they just get it back? And, and the only way that I can say that is not everyone's comeback looks like yours, but it doesn't take away from their comeback. We don't get to determine the time frame that God works in our life or in the lives of other people. For our context, if you come back and then you realize that other people didn't come back with you, the other people that you were close to when you were living in disobedience or living however you wanted, those people are still doing that, then our responsibility is just to pray. To pray that God would work in their life and have them come back when God's ready. I think it's incredible. Listen, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. And we have to remember that. That God works in his time frame. That, that just because he did something in our life and he hasn't done it in their life doesn't mean that they're worse than we are. It just means God's still working in their life. It's in it's time. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 8 and 9 has been my life verse for as long as I can remember. I've quoted this verse. I've kind of just adopted it for my ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. Neither are my thoughts your thoughts. Just as the heaven is higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I just have to trust God. I'm not as smart as he is. I'm not got it together as he does. And the way he works through other people's lives, I have to trust him working through their life. My job is to pray for them. We don't know what God's doing in the lives of other people. We don't know uh, what he's stirring in their heart and how he's working in the background to orchestrate things that are going to impact them on an incredible level. In all reality, it's not our job to judge that or to critique that or have comment toward that. It's our job to pray for people. It's our job to encourage people and to be there for them. And it's like Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 says, to love one another and spur one another on to love and good deeds, right? That's what our job is. We allow God to work out the comeback. We be a support system through that. Now, here's my point about Ezra. I don't want you to get this mixed up. Ezra was faithfully serving. He was faithfully teaching. He was faithfully living his life. He just hadn't come back to Jerusalem yet. Okay, God then called him and said, hey, I need you to come back. So he comes back. Ezra didn't need a spiritual comeback. He was actively teaching the law of God where he was. And just because he didn't come back with the first wave of people back doesn't mean he wasn't being used by God where he was. And this is where this is where I don't want us to get this twisted. We, for the past month, have been talking about the Israelites' return to God, and we've looked at uh, their need to get back to worship and back to obedience and back to what they knew to be right and true. Ezra was faithfully doing all those things, just not in Jerusalem. And don't twist that into, well, see, 
See, I can do whatever I want to do. I don't have to come back. I can do whatever I well, This is where God's placed me. And on one hand, that's a very true statement. On the other hand, we need to remember that God never places us in sin or disobedience or in half-hearted devotion to him. Never. He doesn't place us in the middle of sin so that we can be used by him in the middle of that sin. He doesn't do that. He calls us out of that to be used by him. And so don't get that, don't get that twisted up. As much as Zerubbabel was leading one thing in Jerusalem, Ezra was leading another. And we can't manipulate this time frame of him coming back into a thought of, well, I can fully love God and I can fully serve God even while I'm actively choosing a life of sin and disobedience to him. No, you can't. You can't. Ezra didn't, didn't, he didn't physically come back with everybody else, but it's not about a physical comeback. Just like it's not about a physical comeback to church. You can come back to church. You can sit in, in our service under my teaching. You can sit in a small group. You can even come on a Wednesday night Bible study. You can go, uh, you can physically be here and not be spiritually changed, right? Ezra didn't need a physical comeback. This series is about a spiritual comeback about a coming back to a life defined by obedience. Ezra was already being obedient. We are the ones in need of the spiritual comeback. Does that make sense? Is that, I, I hated to even try to work our way all the way around that, but it had to be said because I didn't want anybody to misunderstand Ezra's not coming until now as a disobedience thing. It wasn't. He was doing exactly what he's supposed to do just somewhere else. And I'll do you one even better. Remember I said that the people came back and the foundations of the temple were laid two years after their return. This is going all the way back to like week one or week two. And then uh, we read in scripture that Haggai and Zechariah show up and they're like, listen, st don't stop building the temple. You got to get back to it. And I told you last week that was an 18-year time frame between when the temple foundations were laid and when they started rebuilding it again. So they've been gone for 70 years. They've been back for about 20 years. And that phrase at Ezra chapter 7 verse 1, after these things, Ezra returns to Jerusalem 58 years after the temple was finished. After the temple was finished. That phrase, after these things, skips about 60 years of Israelite history. And so when Ezra comes back, the people have had the temple for almost 60 years. And they'd gotten real comfortable. And some old habits had started to kind of creep back in. Ezra's timing was exactly how God wanted it to be. Ezra comes to Jerusalem and he comes with letters of recommendation. We're not going to read this part of, the, of Scripture. Uh, Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, basically sends him with a letter saying, give him whatever he needs, do whatever he says to do. Ezra's the man, right? He kind of gives this little stamp of approval on his life. There's a list of individuals that come back with Ezra. He doesn't come by himself. There's a whole second wave of people that come and uh, there were celebrations with all these other new people coming back. There were sacrifices made again. And then the Bible says in Ezra chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, it says this. 
after these things, those talking about the celebrations and the sacrifices and all that kind of stuff, after these things had been done, the leaders came to me. Notice this is now first person. This is Ezra's account. The leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Pezzarites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and they have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. Now, when we read this, I need you to understand a couple of different things. Number one is that Israel is a holy nation. Right? It, is, it had been set apart by God for God. This goes all the way back to the covenant with Abraham, right? Abraham, I will be your God and uh, you will be my people, right? This is confirmed through Moses. It's confirmed through David and Solomon. This is a, this is a known uh, Israelite fact that we are God's chosen people. Prophets have taught for generations that Israel was God's segulah. That's a Hebrew word. It means treasured possession. If you've been in my teaching before, you've heard me say that phrase a thousand times. It's my favorite Hebrew word. It's kind of like saying that we are the apple of God's eye, right? This word is used in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. I think I've got that on the screen. It says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession, his segula. So yes, there's this national people group, this preservation thing that just basically said, listen, Israelites, let's just stay Israelites. Let's stay, let's marry within our people. But this intermarriage thing is not a racial thing, okay? Don't, don't, don't mistake it as that. It's a spiritual thing. Here's the reason why. I just read you Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. If you back up a few verses in Deuteronomy, in the law, it, this is where God gives the command not to intermarry and why. Here's what it says. Do not intermarry with them. This is verse 3. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me. I'll see, there it is. To serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you. And he will quickly destroy you. See, see, God knew that if given enough time, when surrounded by things that are false, things that are contrary to God, things that are against what he has for you, that eventually those things that we knew to be wrong would be justified into being okay. Things that we knew were false gods became permissible expressions of worship. Things that they knew would not even compare to God became prioritized over God. And you almost can't help but draw the parallels back into our own lives. Things that we think that we can handle became the thing that ruins our life. 
The things that we saw as, oh, it's no big deal, right? I can handle it. They become an addiction that we can't break. Things that we know better and we know is a bad idea, that we know nothing good comes from this. We think that we're the exception to the rule, right? That, that we can handle and we can withstand the power and the pull into deeper and darker places that we can handle and that we can push back against the temptation to do more and more and give more of them ourselves into it. And we thought that we were different and it turns out that we're not. See, the command in Deuteronomy chapter 7 was meant for spiritual protection. It's like, don't, don't intermarry, because when you do that, it's going gonna, it's gonna to creep in these other things that's going to pull your focus away from God. This, we don't have time to do this, we don't have time to go back into all of Old Testament history, but this is the very reason that exiled them in the first place. They continued to open their hearts and open their worlds to other people and bringing in their foreign gods. This goes all the way back to Solomon and all his wives, right? They would, they would continue to kind of just kind of wrestle back and forth with pagan worship. If you read your Old Testament, read through the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, and you're going to see over and over again these guys who are just struggling. They would, they would tear down all the Asherah poles and the Baal worship, Right? And then the next king would build it all right back up. And they'd worship these pagan gods on these high places, which is just essentially the mountaintops. And they would do all this pagan worship. And then finally a good king would come along. If you were lucky, about eight or nine of them would come along. One of them would come along and they'd tear it all down. And they'd get right back to what they're supposed to be worshiping. Only God, God alone. And the next king would come in and start leaning back and letting them do their old practice. This is over and over again, the, the history of Israel. And it's called something that's a fancy word. It's called the word synchronism. Synchronism just means God plus other things. And so even when they were worshiping Baal and when they were worshiping um, the Ashura, the goddess Ashura, they, they were still worshiping God. They'd still go to Jerusalem and sacrifice at the temple. They were, they were just covering all their bases well, I'm going to worship God, but I'm also going to worship all these other things. They opened all these doors. And it's almost like Proverbs 26.11 being played out in front of us. 26.11 says, as a dog returns to its vomit, a fool repeats its folly. And you can just see that in the life of Israel over and over again. You just sit back and you go, what are you guys doing? Why in the world would you do that? And then it's like... God just kind of slaps us on the back of the head and go, what in the world are you doing? Why would you continue to do that yourself? Because, see, we have all these same struggles, right? A lot of us have experienced our comeback. We've experienced forgiveness and grace and love and restoration, and we've run to the Father only to be met with open arms, right? God is waiting for our return. And then some time passes, we find ourselves back in the same struggle that we began in. It may not be the Asherah poles or the Baal worship, but we place idols in our own lives and we run back to them time and time and time again, knowing better, knowing that this is not going to work out well, knowing that this is not going to help me in any way. We've come back a few times and it seems like every time that we do, after some time passes, our defenses come down 
And we slip back into things that we know lead nowhere. It's not all at once, right? We never do that. Rarely do we do that. I won't say never. Rarely do we just jump right back into our own sin life and we just say, oh, forget it. Uh, the, the comeback's over, right? Most of the time, it's a compromise here. It's a little something there. It's the thought of, oh, this, this won't hurt anyone. Or, or I, I've got this. I'm not going to let it get out of hand like I did last time. And can I just say this, church, with all the love in the world? I have just like three little examples, and these are nothing. If you've struggled with alcohol in your past, and you still socially drink, or you only drink on occasion, then you're still an alcoholic. You're playing with something that you're never going to get over. If you've had an affair, and you've come back from that, and you still look at pornography, or you still seek out flirtatious relationships, and you're still cheating on your spouse. You're dabbling in things that you cannot get out of. If you've been addicted to prescription medication and you may not now be taking the same thing that you used to but you still have to have those other things to get through the day then you're still a drug addict we can't play at things that God's called us out of and we need to realize that even though we may not have jumped fully on we're not fully back where we used to be we're slowly easing ourselves back into a life and before we know it we're going to be right back in the middle of it it's that old adage, and I've, I've heard it a thousand times. I've probably even said it in here more than that. If you put a frog into boiling water, it'll jump out. But if you put a frog into a pot of water and slowly bring it to a boil, it'll boil to death. And some of us, I think, are playing around with being boiled to death. We're just slowly making decisions, slowly pulling back to the same old things, the same old games, not recognizing that these things will eventually ruin us. So these people come to Ezra and they tell him, listen, this is what's going on. Our leadership are leading the way in this. The priests and the Levites are not setting a good example for us. This has been almost 60 years since the temple's been rebuilt and they've just slowly pushed back into that old lifestyle. Look what Ezra does, chapter 9, verse 3. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak. I pulled hair from my head and from my beard, and I sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exile. I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. This, this tearing of the tunic, this is an ancient Near Eastern expression of grief and sorrow, right? We can go back in Scripture and remember that uh, Reuben did this whenever they found out that uh, they sold Jacob, his brother, into or Joseph, his brother, to the Midianites. Uh, Reuben tore his clothes. His dad, uh, Jacob, tore his clothes when he thought that, uh, that when he thought that Joseph was dead. Job tore his clothes whenever he found out that his kids had all died. And then when Job's friends came, they all tore their tunic as well. This is just a expression of grief, extreme grief. The, the pulling out the hair and the beard, uh, only, it's only mentioned three times in Scripture. We're going to talk about that later on. It's just another, like, it's, it's kind of an odd expression, but it's, it's an expression that, that was kind of familiar to them in some sort. What I want you to see here 
is the extreme shock and horror that came over Ezra when he heard what the Israelites were doing. Now, now remember, Ezra had been out and he had been faithfully teaching and faithfully living and faithfully instructing people on in the law of God. And he comes back to Jerusalem expecting them to be doing everything right. And he shows up and they're like, listen, man, we are just as bad off as we were before we ever got put in exile. And Ezra says that he sat there appalled. That Hebrew word appalled is samaim. And it means this. It means to be stunned desolated, appalled, or to cause oneself ruin. He sat appalled knowing that their action was going to ruin them. That's our response when God shakes us from our sin struggle. Y'all remember that? And then the initiative moment of the coming back story, we are appalled by where we are. God, how did I ever get here? How did I ever get this far away from what you wanted for me? And you, you feel appalled at yourself, realizing that you've ruined things, that you've ruined opportunities, that you, you've missed the, the, the mark of obedience, and you, you've kind of just uh, realized the magnitude of your own disobedience. And we wake up and we quit playing games and we're like, listen, I'm appalled at my action. I'm appalled at the distance of my relationship here. I'm appalled at the sin that I chose over God. I'll never do that again. And just like the Israelites, we let a little bit of time and we begin to bend the rules or justify our actions or when we desynthesize ourselves to the appalling nature of our sin, we eventually don't see it as appalling anymore. We just see it as our new normal. Right? We've gotten used to it. We've got to wake up and see our sin for what it is like Ezra be appalled by it. Then look what happens, verse 5. Then at the evening sacrifice, remember he sat there till the evening sacrifice. At the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement. That word means heaviness or humiliation. With my tunic and cloak torn and I fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed. He prayed. I hope you have your Bible because I don't have this on the screen. It's a long passage, and we're going to read it together. If you don't have it, there should be a Bible in the pew in front of you. Turn to Ezra chapter 9, uh, verse 6, because we're going to read Ezra's prayer. We're going to see his brokenness and what he says to God about what he just experienced through his return. Ezra chapter 9, verse 6. He says this, oh my God, I'm too ashamed and disgraced to lift my face to you, my God, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached the heavens. From the days of our forefathers until now, our guilt has been great because our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. 
Though we're slaves, our God has not deserted us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of the Lord our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, oh our God, what can we say after this? For we have disregarded the commands you gave through your servants and the prophets when you said the land you're entering to possess and the land polluted by corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them. At any time, you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and give it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. He knows the rule. Verse 13, what's happened to us as a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt, and yet our God... You have punished us less than our sins have deserved and has given us a remnant like this. Shall we again break your commands and intermarry with the people who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us or leaving us with no remnant or survivor? Oh Lord, God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are, before you in our guilt, though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. It's an incredible passage of Scripture. I could probably preach ten sermons just on this one prayer of Ezra. Notice just a few things. Not counting the phrases like, our God or the Lord our God. In this prayer, Ezra says the words, we, six times, us, 12 times, and our, 13 times. 31 different times, Ezra identifies with the sins of the Israelites. 31 times, he puts himself in the narrative as one who has sinned 31 times, he chooses to take accountability, to bear responsibility, to share in the shame and the guilt. He wasn't condemning the people of Israel. He was confessing with them. He shared in a sin that he didn't commit. He didn't point fingers at them. He continued to say, we have done this. The second thing I want you to notice out of this passage is that Ezra continues to point out God's grace through this entire passage. You have punished us less than our sins deserve. This is on the front of your bulletin. It should be on the front of your bulletin for the last four weeks. It's going to continue all the way through the summer. This is kind of our theme verse through this series. God doesn't have to allow our comeback. But aren't you thankful that he does? You've punished us less than our sins deserve. You've allowed this remnant to stay. And then look at this, verse, chapter 10, verse 1. Ezra 
was praying, says, while Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children gathered around him, and they too wept bitterly. What if, church, what if your recognition of the appalling nature of your sin, what if your comeback sparked a comeback of someone else's? What if if God is working in your life and he brings you to a point of repentance and obedience and through that God brings your family along? God brings your husband or your kids or your co-workers or your best friend along. You don't do it for them. You do it because God's called you to it. But what if God used your comeback story to initiate a comeback of somebody else's? Would we not be willing to do anything so that the ones that we love can come back as well? Israel comes along and he says, listen, I'm just going to pray. Well, we, we, if we step back and we zoom out of the story of Ezra, we see Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple. Ezra reformed the people. That was his job. His job had nothing to do with the temple. The temple were already done. Ezra had to bring the people back to a point of saying, God, we need you. We need to get back to what we know we're supposed to be. Even though we're back here, even though we're physically back in Jerusalem, we're spiritually not back where we're supposed to be yet. God, we need to order our lives around the order you have for us. I think sometimes, I think sometimes, a lot of us equate a physical comeback as a spiritual one. And just because you're here on Sunday mornings or because you're watching online doesn't mean that you've spiritually come back to what God's got for you. Maybe you have. Maybe you absolutely have, but some time has passed. And now you're kind of dabbling in things you know to be false and not true. It's time for a whole heart comeback. Here's my last thought and I'll be done. Remember I said that Ezra's act of pulling out his hair and his beard was only mentioned three times in Scripture. It's really incredible. Just go with me. It's mentioned one time in Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah, during the suffering servant passages, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, it says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. He's obviously, uh, he's obviously prophesying about the coming Messiah, about Jesus. We can connect those dots, okay? It's mentioned in Isaiah, it's mentioned in Ezra, we just read that, where he's doing it to himself. And then if we were to look ahead in our story, it's mentioned again in Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13, he, Nehemiah does it to the people who have intermarried. This is a continual struggle. We're going to see this play out again. Spoiler alert. That This, this is not all that, that they have to deal with. Ezra addresses it, but Nehemiah has to address it again later. And Nehemiah comes and he pulls the beard hair out of the men who have intermarried. Three different instances by three different men in three different positions in Scripture. Isaiah was a prophet 
Right? He, he came and, and, and through his passage in the, in the suffering servant passages, he is prophesying about the coming Messiah. Ezra, here in our passage this morning, is a priest. He's acting as a priest. He's a descendant of the high priest. And he's sharing in the judgment of the people, bearing the sin, even though it wasn't his sin he didn't commit. And then again in Nehemiah. We'll get there over the coming weeks. When Nehemiah comes back in, the kingship of Israel has not been reestablished. Israel was still under rule of Persia. Uh, we fast forward the story. Uh, Israel gets their independence through um, the revolt of the Maccabean revolt for a short time. And then Rome comes along and just wipes everybody out. And they're under Roman rule when Jesus comes into the scene. But what Nehemiah does in the culture of Israel, Nehemiah is acting as a king. He's, he's calling out orders. He's having people do things. He is in the position, even though without the title, of a king. And then when he punishes the people for intermarriage, that's a punishment that a king would dish out. And so, what's incredible is this instance of a beard being pulled out happens to Ezra, Nehemiah, and Ezra. Isaiah, Ezra, and Nehemiah. A prophet, a priest, and a king. And what so only God can do is the central character in our comeback story culminate in the office of a prophet, a priest, and a king. Right? They're all the same person in the person of Jesus. Jesus establishes himself as a prophet because he's teaching and explaining and, and implementing the very words of God. He establishes himself as a king. We talked about that over Easter. Remember riding on the donkey and the sign over his head even through this crucifixion. Uh, the temple courts healing people. The palm branches being waved and the cloaks being set down. Everything about Jesus' life pointed to him, his kingship. And he was also a priest. A priest like Ezra who shared in the punishment of sin that he did not commit. When he died on the cross, he bore our punishment to death. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Make no mistake about it. No comeback happens without Jesus. No comeback happens. We don't just wake up on our own one day and go, you know what, I think I'm going to live this, leave this life of sin and I'm going to go back to God. That's Jesus working in our hearts and in our lives as a prophet, as a priest, and as a king. And he's calling us back to what we know is good and what is right and what is true. And everything that 2 Corinthians chapter 5 just said happens to be focused on in him. In him we might have become the righteousness of the God. We, we can't become righteous to God on our own. We have to be in him. Our comeback story resonates in Jesus. It begins in him. It's completed in him, and it's maintained in him, the prophet, the priest, and the king. 
Ezra, Nehemiah, and our story over this summer get to be an example to the Israelites of what Jesus is to us. He is our comeback. When we recognize and are appalled by our sin and the place that we are, He is the one who brings that to us. When we come out of that and we, and we walk back to whatever it is to where God has for us, He is the way that we walk. When we come back to God, God doesn't see us in our sin. He sees His Son and the redemption and the forgiveness that He gave through Him. It's in him, we have a comeback. And so make no mistake, when we talk about our comeback story and we talk about all the things that we need to do, it's not about us. It's never been about us. It's not about our own recognition. It's not about our own travel back. It's not about our own story of reconciliation. It's all about Jesus, the prophet, priest, and king who's exampled through Ezra, Nehemiah, and Isaiah. For some of us, we've tried to make it about ourselves, and that's the reason why we drift back into the things that we were in to begin with. We never made it about Him. We made it about a physical comeback and not a spiritual comeback. Ezra says, listen, we got to come all the way back. And we can't go back to these things that we used to do. We can't go back to this life that we used to live. And if we're playing at it, then we're playing at Him. I'm going to ask if you stand and bow your head. TJ's going to come and sing. We're going to have a moment of invitation. This is just for you to deal with whatever God's dealing with you in. Maybe, maybe you've realized, maybe you've, you've been playing at things that you should have been out of for a long time. Maybe, maybe you never really came all the way back. You were physically here, but never really spiritually here. This is your opportunity to do what God's calling you to do. Don't miss it. Don't pass it up by the familiarity of our invitation. Don't pass it up because who might say what about you? If you need to come and pray, you come pray. If you need to come talk to me, you come talk to me. If you need to get saved today and have your initiation of your comeback, then get saved today. We can't play around at this any longer. It's not because of us. It's because of Him. Because in Him, we become the righteousness of God. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. And we thank you for all that you are and all that you're doing. And God, in our story, let it not be about us. Let it be about Jesus. Let it start and end in Him. So Father, this morning we come and we confess that maybe we've been playing at things that we needed to get away from a long time ago. Maybe we've, been, maybe we've been dabbling in areas thinking that we have it under control, knowing in the depth of our heart that we don't. God, forgive us. Forgive us for the arrogance of thinking that we can handle sin on our own. Forgive us for the arrogance of thinking that we can do life without you or that we could come out, somehow come back and play at a comeback and not really ever fully come back. God, help us. Father, if there's somebody here this morning that needs to initiate their comeback, needs to take the first step, God, let them do that. Let them in this moment pray with all honesty, surrounded by people who will celebrate their comeback for forgiveness, for grace, for salvation in Jesus' name alone. Father, for some of us, we just need to stop playing games. Stop slowly coming to a boil in areas of our life that we know we can't handle. 
God, we can confess that where we sit. We can confess that at the altar. We can confess that however you want us to express it. But Father, help us to be obedient to what you're calling us to. If there's somebody that needs to join the church, God, this is a great church. If they have questions about who you are, about how to live life, God, I'd love to answer them or talk to them. God, just let us be obedient to whatever you're calling us to in this moment. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.